You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Fox. So the same Hi, welcome to episode 263 of the Christian Humanist Podcast. I'm your host for today. My name is Michael Farmer. I'm an assistant professor of English at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. I'm back from London. I haven't listened to last week's episode, so I don't know what sorts of things were said about me in my absence, but uh, I'll get them back sometime. Uh, Also joining me, Nathan Gilmore, who is a professor of English at Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. Yes, indeed. Signed my contract today. Very exciting. Sweet. What are you going to do with that extra 30 bucks a month? <laughs> uh, betterworldbooks.com. <laughs> Which is not a paid sponsor, but if you want to, hit me up. Nice. I will nice. say, uh, what, since, since you have breached the topic of paid sponsorships, I believe we'll, we'll have two sponsored episodes coming up, probably starting with next week, so our listeners can wait with bated breath to see who was foolish enough to give us cash money (laughs) how does one bait their breath i was never really quite sure what verb that is i'm not it's b-a-t-e-d right it's not b-a-i it's like you're hanging a fish on a hook i I don't know what the what it means (laughs) either it's it's what you smell like after you've been eating night crawlers nice there you go uh wondering about grammatical choices is david grubbs assistant professor of english at houston baptist university hello hello governor yeah uh what's going on in the network sundry things yes the sectarian review uh i was actually on the episode this week uh and we were talking about the odd phenomenon of autographing bibles and specifically uh, certain chief executives of certain large nations signing Bibles. Huh. Queen Beatrix of the Netherlands, right? Yeah, yeah, Dude, yeah. That's doubt, amazing. Doubtless. Doubtless, that's who it was. I'm trying to think, uh, the Christian Feminist Podcast did their Ripley episode, but that's been up for a little while. Uh... Before they were live, uh, we're still waiting for the next one. Yeah, two days from when this drops, you'll be getting our episode on the Aristocats. Very good, very good. Cool, cool. Um, oh, and then, uh, David, your uh, interview with Andrew Root is up. And I believe when this one goes live, my interview with uh, Heidi Hornick uh, on art and the Christian spiritual life will be up. Very cool. Yeah. That's one of those books that I almost requested and you got instead. Oh, I'm, I, I didn't mean to. Please don't apologize. Cut in what, a line. Stu- what a stupid thing to apologize for. <laughs> <laughs> just, just sort of as you're listening, uh, dear listeners, just l- listen to that episode and imagine how it would sound in the alternate universe where Michael beat Nathan to the punch. Hey, I'm, where, I'm, where, I'm, from, I'm from the Midwest. I don't like to to uh, impose upon people. 
<laughs> uh, imagine the episode where Michael Farmer, half drunk, attempts to talk about art. <laughs> we should do that episode. Uh, you know, I, I don't know how much our listeners know, but the first few seasons of this show we recorded at like 5 o'clock in the afternoon, and I was frequently, I was not half drunk, but I frequently had a cocktail. You could probably hear the ice in some of the early episodes. Sort of a sort of a mental lubricant, as it were. Yeah. Doom 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 doom. Yep. Well, uh, our episode this week is on what we're calling city walking. Uh, we read a number of different pieces: Edgar Allan Poe's short story, "The Man of the Crowd." Uh, parts of Charles Baudelaire's The Painter of Modern Life, parts of Walter Benjamin's On Some Motifs of Baudelaire, and then a, an essay by Virginia Woolf called Street Haunting. And all of these have to do with walking in the city. Much of what we've read today addresses explicitly or implicitly the very strange Poe short story, The Man of the Crowd. I have found this is not one of Poe's stories known, ironically enough, by the man on the street. Nathan, tell us about this story. What makes it weird? What sorts of ambiguities and tensions is he drawing out of city walking? Sure. So the plot of the story is fairly straightforward. Uh, The narrator is sitting in a uh, public coffee shop uh, when the sun sets, the darkness sets in, uh, and the crowds outside in the streets swell. And, uh, Upon seeing a a certain old man pass by, the man's curiosity overcomes him, and he follows the man uh, through the crowds uh, for several pages, it turns out, uh, observing uh, really just kind of the nature of the crowds. Really, it's reminiscent for me uh, of the uh, descent into the maelstrom, except instead of the phenomena that uh, surround the great whirlpool, it's the phenomena that, that surround the streets. So, Michael, you, you, you posed the questions about uh, ambiguities and tensions. Uh, they are the same kinds of ambiguities and tensions that you get in uh, Milton's uh, famous pair of poems, Allegro and Penseroso. Uh, the narrator is, at the same time, part of the scene, but also removed from the scene. Uh, within the scene itself, you get uh, these crowds of industrious people making their way home from work, making their way to places of business. But then also the the esthetes, if you will, uh, the people who don't seem to have any uh, business necessarily on the street, and yet they are out there observing it or becoming angry at it or, you know, enjoying being angry at it. Uh, you get the very directed traffic of, again, business people, and then the old man who, as the story rolls on, becomes more and more evidently aimless. Uh, he very literally wanders out to the edge of the town until there's no more London town left. Uh, and then, you know, uh, wanders back until he finds the stream of traffic again. And there's no real uh, sense of why any of this is happening. Uh, but, you know, the, the sort of epiphany at the end uh, is that, you know, in a, in a sort of restrained kind of allegory, uh, the man is a kind of everyman. And through all this, and you know, you can tell I just kind of made a, a catalog of the ambiguities and tensions I found, uh, you get this strong tension between the artificial. Uh, this is decidedly a man-made environment. 
Uh, we've got, you know, gaslit streets, uh, not in the modern psychological sense, but actually, you know, there's gas and they light it on fire and it makes light. Um, although I guess you could do some psychological stuff with it too. Why not? Right. Oh, I, but I think there, I think there, I mean, obviously he didn't have this in mind, but there is a kind of gaslighting going on here, right? He's gaslighting himself about this, this man whom he's so sure is evil without giving us really any kind of indication of why he might be evil. It, like he he is clearly clearly is too strong. He is arguably deluded, and he's arguably deluded about being deluded. Oh sure sure sure. But to get back to my point real quick, and then Michael, I want you to say more about that. But the the tension that sort of frames everything is that artificiality of the environment, but then the very natural character that emerges within that artificial environment. So. One thing that I noted, again, because I teach Descent into the Maelstrom fairly regularly, it's about the only Poe text that I teach with any regularity anymore, uh, is that the swell of the crowd was very reminiscent of the way that Poe narrates the swell of the whirlpool, the Maelstrom. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, you know, there's a, there's a sense that the, the crowd itself uh, is a natural phenomenon, uh, even though any given individual has entirely artificial reasons for being there. But I want to go back to uh, what you were talking about, Michael. I mean, you know, talk about the uh, the delusion of our narrator. Well, and you, you can never be quite sure it's delusional. He he is a frail man. Um, Baudelaire makes a lot of hay out of the fact that all of this is precipitated on the fact that our narrator has recently been ill, almost dead. And he like comes back to life and he, the first thing he does is sit in this coffee shop where he just stares out the window all day looking at these people. So there's this sense that the narrator lives in a kind of thin place between this world and the next. And so maybe that would give you a reason to trust his impressions of this old man. Or maybe uh, it, it shows you that he hasn't really recovered. Whatever fever has come over him is still partially in his brain and he's just stalking this harmless old man so the fact that he turns this guy into an emblem of evil into the devil himself really i think is supposed to be one of the ambiguities that poe is putting forth here i i guess a lot of it depends on whether or not you consider this of a piece with the detective stories with the tales of ratianase uh, how do you pronounce that rat ratianization whatever it is Something oh okay like okay I, I, I thought you're asking, yeah. yeah i thought you're asking me how to pronounce a french word no, it's a it's a, a Poe word. I, I, if you if you consider this one of those, I think you're probably going to be more likely to take the narrator at his word. If you see it more as belonging to the tradition of uh, the Telltale Heart or whatever, I think you're probably going to be more apt to see the narrator is still half crazy, and and the fact that we don't know where to put it, I think, is important. Yeah, I, I guess I just kind of instinctively read it as one of the stories of delusion that's why i thought your take was so apt i i assume that the narrator was inventing this uh diabolical character and and following him through the streets uh until at the end he realizes that he might be the criminal mind here well and yeah i mean the the point he makes at the end right is that um good and evil are not things that human beings can ever really know that the nature of crime is beyond our ability to understand and, I mean, again, that, that could be him failing to understand this devil who's walking around London, or it could be him realizing, uh, oh, hey, wait, uh, I, I'm acting like a crazy person. 
<laughs> I actually, you know, I'm I'm on record of as not liking Poe. I actually like the Man of the Crowd quite a bit. Really? Do you not? I it's such a strange little story. Oh, it is it it is strange. It has uh I think it has a quirky charm to it, but it's the kind of quirky charm that I see in more of Poe, and I'm wondering why you love it here and not necessarily elsewhere. I don't find it overwrought here. My my okay. biggest issue with Poe is that everything has to be this opportunity for uh, gothic ejaculation. You, you don't really. <laughs> Ew. <get that>. <laughs> <laughs> you I pick my words carefully. Uh, you don't really get that here. It's, it, it's comparatively <laughs> understated, which is why which is why I think it might belong more to the uh, detective stories, which are also understated in that same way. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. I think my working assumption, Michael, is that since I'm reading it for the first time, I'm going to find it charming. But if I ever had to teach it two semesters in a row, I'd get sick of it. That's probably I would I don't teach this story. I wouldn't want to teach. The only Poe I teach, incidentally, is uh, Mask of the Red Death. Fun. I like that one. Um. You you keep mentioning the seeing it as either the story the stories of delusion, the stories of madness, or the stories of ratiocination. Um, I kind of read it as the latter because the story begins with him looking out the window. Um inferring things about everyone he sees based on the ways that they dress and behave. Right. It's very Sherlock Holmes. Yeah. Um, things like, you know, I know that you're a clerk because of the way that your ears stick out from the ways that you put a pencil behind it. Um, th- th- things like that. Yeah. It's very, it's very much like Sherlock Holmes telling people what they do for a living based on their calluses or their tattoos or a pattern of a tan line. Um, yeah, so that, that that's kind of what it made me think of here. And the the ending of it is very, very strange to me. And, and I'm still not quite exactly sure that I know what, what great realization um, the narrator had at the end. I mean, to me, he seems to, like, stalk this tor- this poor man until the man tries to go into a bar and then gets kicked out and then he st- keeps walking more and our narrator has an epiphany of ultimate evil or something i it, it's it's kind of it's kind of weird i'm not, i'm never really quite sure what he's basing it on is it because- let's be frank about who edgar allan poe is he, <laughs> is a man, he is a man constitutionally unable or unwilling to conclude a story so that's fair. Once you once you get past the big ones, none of his stories really have any kind of satisfying ending. It's like an SNL episode or something. Uh, every every sketch just kind of cuts off at the end because he couldn't figure out how to end it. And I mean, nowhere is that more clear than his story, uh, the mystery of Marie Roger. Do you guys know that one? Yeah, he just doesn't end one? it at all. No, not at all. It's based on a real real story, and he is going to solve the crime, and he can't, so he just kind of trails off. Yeah. Yeah, and so so if you're dissatisfied with the ending, with most people I say cut uh, cut him some slack. With Poe, I say, well, he may just not have known how to end it. <laughs> well, which <laughs> speaking of gaslighting, um, it's it's an especially funny observation given that one bit, that one essay that he wrote um, about the art of poetry, uh, in which 
that final effect that is achieved is the thing that is part of the artistic vision from the very beginning and everything is laboring to achieve that that one unified final effect and there are some post stories that seem to do that sort of thing but sure red death does that um you know telltale heart uh cask of amontillado but like i said once you get past the big ones poe just kind of trails off yeah yeah, I, I, I've been thinking about the end of this story and trying to make sense of it and um, and wondered if it was that that the man that he's following seems to have nowhere to go. He's not coming from anywhere. He's not going to anywhere. He simply exists within the crowd. And so having hit the edge, he has to walk back to the middle because there is there is no other existence for him. Which would also explain why the story can't come to a neat ending because... You know the the guy's a, a a wandering, well he's a flaneur is the is the appropriate term and I'll, I'm going to use that word several more times this semester or semester, man this episode a flaneur is it's a untranslatable French word it's a, a flaneur is the guy who it's someone who makes Spanish desserts that's right yeah <laughs> he he uh, he walks aimlessly through the city as a spiritual discipline almost huh it's so it's it's someone who walks for no particular purpose but for the purpose of walking through a city through a crowd so that's what our that's what our man here is for sure does he roam about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour doesn't really seek anything huh does he wear flannel probably depending on the decade i don't know all right cool anything else about this poe story i mean except in in ways that we'll probably be coming back to it because i mean both uh both baudelaire and benjamin are also talk about it so right so rather than going through the other three readings individually let's just toss out some ideas and see how they turn up in some form in multiple essays I want to begin with location. Uh, we're calling this episode City Walking because what Baudelaire, Benjamin, and Wolf are describing couldn't really take place in the countryside, I don't think. What is it about the city in particular that inspires them? Well, a couple of things that I noted, and Baudelaire is going to be my home, home base for this. Uh, two main things, the humanity and the landscape. Um, landscape first there and I, I find this this phrasing really fascinating he's he's talking in particular about this uh this artist that he won't name because the artist insists on on anonymity and it seems to be this this person whose practice of of sort of roaming here here hereabout for you know all over the place in the city looking for inspiration um okay can, can i interrupt you and yeah. reveal the identity of that artist? yeah by all means his name is Constantin Guy, G G U Y S, like guys, Constantine guys. Huh. Um, you can look up his art. It, I, I have to say, when I first read The Painter of Modern Life and went and uh, looked up Guy's art, uh, Baudelaire describes it much more interestingly than it is to me. So, <laughs> you know, whatever. You went but and looked at it and you were like, eh. That's who CG is, Constantin Guy. Okay. So, um, Monsieur Guy, uh, is super, he's just really inspired, um, 
by by the city and so that he's he's the study Baudelaire's just sort of doing a study of his practice so in terms of the the landscape here's some of the description he watches this the flow of life move by majestic and dazzling he admires the eternal beauty and astonishing harmony of life in the capital cities a harmony so providentially maintained in the tumult of human liberty he gazes at the great landscape of the great city at the landscape of the great city landscapes of stone now uh, swathed in mist now struck in full face by the sun that eternal beauty landscape like these are all words that i associate with romantic poets wandering out in the countryside but it's those kinds of uh terms of the sublime that have now been applied to architecture and that's that's something that i find really really interesting here um, what, you know, what a Wordsworth goes out into, you know, daisy-filled fields to get, uh, this, you know, you, you know, this mysterious unnamed artist who Michael has just named for us, um, uh, he walks around urban spaces for that. Um, so that, that I found really fascinating. And then the other is it almost as if, he he's he's attempting to lose his sense of self in in the realities of not any other particular people but the the many many people and here's here's the other passage uh the crowd is his domain just as the air is the birds and water that of fish his passion and his profession is to merge with the crowd for the perfect idler, for the passionate observer, it becomes an immense source of enjoyment to establish his dwelling in the throng, and the ebb and flow, the bustle, the fleeting, and the infinite. Um, so that it's not even really particular people that that this artist is interested in, but that there's lots of them, and there's so many of them that they've achieved a kind of mass identity that is also anonymity. And by sort of blending into this flow, um, it's as if he's he's getting access to some kind of universal humanity, some kind of universal energy. Thus, the lover of universal life moves into the crowd as though through an enormous reservoir of electricity. So, it it needs to be the city because you need so many people that you can have that experience of losing yourself and losing everyone else too um in this in this crowd have either of you read baudelaire's poetry never uh, i feel like i dipped into it years and years ago but i i couldn't recall any of it I'm going to read a poem. Um, this is, it's called A Un Passant. I'm not going to read it in French and I'm not going to try to translate it myself off the cuff. So this is uh, William Agler's translation to a passerby. The street about me roared with a deafening sound. Tall, slender, in heavy mourning, majestic grief, a woman passed with a glittering hand, raising, swinging the hem and flounces of her skirt. Agile and graceful, her leg was like a statue's. Tense as in a delirium, I drank from her eyes, pale sky where tempests germinate, 
The sweetness that enthralls and the pleasure that kills. A lightning flash, then night. Fleeting beauty by whose glance I was suddenly reborn. Will I see you no more before eternity? Elsewhere, far, far from here. Too late. Never, perhaps. For I know not where you fled. You know not where I go. O oh, you whom I would have loved. O oh, you who knew it. That's nice. That, it seems to me to, to really get at what Baudelaire likes about the city and kind of what he doesn't like, too. Which is, it's this space of possibility. So, you, you know, you have... I don't know how many people were living in Paris in the 1860s, but you have millions of people um, flooding out onto the, the streets, petals on a wet black bow, right? Yeah. Uh, who knows who you're going to run into, who could change your life, and who knows when you'll run into them again. And so the, the city ends up being this place of electric possibility. Uh, and then on top of that, you have the gas lights, which uh, which are important to a number of these uh, essays. Weirdly enough, but the if you if you've ever seen a gas light, they light things up, but not really, right? It it, it lights things up all, almost only technically, and so <laughs> there's still there's still this kind of haze going on where you can't. You're not seeing terribly well. And then you add to that, especially in London, which is where Man of the Crowd takes place and where Wolf is talking about. Um, you add the, the famous fog, which is really air pollution, right? And so, again, you have this haziness that I think fits very well with that kind of romanticism you're talking about, uh, David. That I mean, one of the things Baudelaire as a poet does is move the locus of romantic attraction from the countryside to the city he's he's maybe the first great poet of the city yeah one one interesting thing though maybe a maybe contrasting the way he's talking about this artist and then the poem that you read and then some of the comments that wolf makes as well uh the artist that he describes seems not only do you lose kind of a sense of his own individual self when he's in the crowd, but also lose, lose everyone else's sense of self too. There's just so many people that they're all just sort of flowing past into it until it's just some kind of human gestalt. But his poetry, Baudelaire's poetry notices this one specific woman and like this very vivid flash of connection you know i could have loved you and you knew it like like this moment i guess of eye contact whatever it is just this brief moment where you feel like i like i touch this other person's mind and i know it um that that i found as a that, that i i found to be a really interesting contrast and wolf has some of the same kinds of things where she notices people in particular well and and the and the old devil man in Poe's story too um these moments where yeah they're they're lost in the amorphous humanity but then something stands out that fascinates that that's an interesting an interesting counterpart to this um getting lost in the in the general uh, right tendency. well, well and, i mean and you think about people watching which is part of what we're talking about here right so you can think about the difference between 
people watching from the street and people watching from a train window or something like that, a bus window. You're still people watching, but when you're in the street, you are in the middle of it. So you're seeing it from a completely different angle. I think it's really telling that Poe's protagonist isn't happy doing this from inside the coffee shop. He has to go out into the street. He has to lose himself in order to see things the way he wants to see them. And I think for our listeners who who enjoy city walking, I, I think that's probably an impulse that makes sense to them. And for the ones who don't, it probably sounds horrible. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's interesting, too, that in the, the Benjamin essay, uh, you know, he, he tries to account for all that, you know, with uh, sort of the psychology of memory that, you know, the the particularities of individuals in the crowd uh, is always necessarily a, a construction and therefore a uh, a replacement and a supersession of the actual manifold of sensation. So it's interesting that, you know, Benjamin, uh, you know, wants to turn, you know, what, what comes to us in Poe's story and, you know, uh, in the poem that you just read, Michael, uh, into something that is necessarily ex post facto. Uh, it's not something that you're actually... Uh, experiencing in the moment when you're in the press, uh, but instead it's something that you actively reconstruct later. Right. Which, I, you know, is is not a million miles away from Wordsworth, right? Yep. The, yep. the spontaneous overflow of powerful feelings recollected in tranquility. Right, right. Yeah. Well, and Baudelaire literally talks about that moment where the artist comes back and has all those things in his head and then creates. I, um, after being in the crowd and, you know, being unable to stay away from the crowd, he comes back, picks up his pen and doesn't want to talk to anyone. Does that not make sense to you? Like that, I, I get that totally and a hundred percent. I I am not a city walker, Michael. So I, I it's, I, I can make a structural sense of it, but it's not something that resonates with me. Well, we've kind of breached this subject, breached, broached this subject already. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I'm very tired today. Um, I want to talk about more about that relationship between the flaneur and the crowd that he floats above. Is I mean, have we? Do you think we've covered that sufficiently, Nathan? Or oh, I've, I've got a couple more things to say about that. Yeah, um, let's let's hear some more. Yeah, I mean, what I find fascinating about uh, Poe and Baudelaire next to each other is that in Poe's story, again, depending on what you think of the mental state of the narrator, uh, he have, at the very least presents himself uh, as an observer, like like David was talking about, something of a detective figure uh, who sees things and observes and catalogs, and he is very much uh, an observant figure. Whereas Baudelaire uh, really turns that figure into an active, uh, turns him into an agent, I'll put it that way. He is, in some sense, not necessarily making himself part of the crowd, so much as he is making the crowd part of himself. Yeah, uh, yeah. He, he turns the That's crowd right. into an environment. Uh, you know, the, the phrase that, that, that jumped out at me is, uh, quote, the weird pageant has been distilled from nature, end quote. Uh, so again, there's that sense from Poe that this is a natural phenomenon of sorts, even though it's in an artificial environment. Uh, and yet, you know, Baudelaire is insistent that uh, the flaneur uh, is not simply 
passively sensing or, you know, uh, passively observing uh, the things around him, but actually making something of them. So, I mean, it's, it's this sense of curiosity in the sort of Augustinian vice sense. It is, I am going to turn the matter and the sensations of the world into things that, you know, I can uh, enjoy uh, organizing, if you will. Uh, so I, I think that that contrast between uh, Poe and Baudelaire is interesting. And I think it's also interesting that uh, Wolf, to some extent, returns back to what Poe is talking about. But uh, I, I'm going to talk about uh, Wolf at some length later, so I won't go too much into that. But then when you get to, uh, you know, again, the, uh, the Benjamin essay, uh, you know, he attempts, and I'm not sure how satisfying I find it, he attempts to systematize that uh, into a sort of, you know, fairly linear mental process where in the moment it really is the manifold of sensation a la Immanuel Kant, but then afterwards it is the organizing of those things a la William Wordsworth. Benjamin is interesting, right? I mean, I don't know how much experience you guys have with him, but I love to read him. I find him um, very interesting, and I almost never think he's right about anything. I, <laughs> yeah, I, there were there were flashes, but maybe it's just my unfamiliar unfamiliarity with him. But often I found. Benjamin's explanations of Baudelaire as poetically inaccessible as Baudelaire. Oh, fascinating. Yeah. And so there there were times in which it seemed almost as if he was, you know, you know, he, he, he was presenting poetry to explicate poetry. He was giving images in order to interpret images. And... Um, I'm not mad at it, um, but I, I don't know that I necessarily left Baudelaire thinking that I understood it much better. The one thing in Benjamin that, uh, I don't know that it necessarily rubbed me wrong it, so much as it just felt, I don't know that it felt... Um, like it was organically part of what he was talking about. He kept wanting to talk about um, mechanization and uh, and factories and how repetitive action, the repetitive actions that's part of mechanized industry, um, uh, sort of acclimatizing the worker into the, these repetitive actions, making them also a machine themselves. Um and yes, there's repetitive action and the kind of resulting almost loss of humanity uh, in in these crowd scenes, in Baudelaire and Poe especially, but I, I, I think Poe and Baudelaire would probably hear that, that characterization of the thing they're describing as, as weirdly unalive, when both of them are fascinated by a kind of life and what they're talking about. Yeah, but I think you could make sense of what Baudelaire and Poe are doing in Benjamin's terms if you take it not as a loss of humanity so much as a an adaptation of humanity to the mechanical rhythms. Because that's really what I see in Poe's story when, you know, the, the, the sky gets dark and the gas lights come on and all of a sudden 
you know, it's, it's as if someone had turned a valve on and later on you find out it's because in addition to all the people who would be walking during the day, you also have pickpockets. Right. Uh, the city's and, infested. Yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, it is, I mean, the way that I read it and, and David, I'd, I'd be glad to hear, you know, rebuttal to this. It's, it's not so much that, you know, they have become machines, but they have become fish who are swimming around a man-made dam. They don't stop being fish. It's just their environment has changed and they have adapted the way that they are fish to the dam. That's, that's interesting. It's, it's a, it's, it's a different image though. It's less, they're becoming part of the machine and more they're, they're still living things that are, um, fitting themselves to the structure of the environment. But, I, I don't know, maybe that feels like a middle term, but I mean, considering that I just, I just met all of these texts. <laughs> well, and, and you're reading I mean, two, or, or you're David, reading two could... of them only an excerpt too. I mean, that's you true. Know, he, that's true. Y- you read about a third of, uh, of Benjamin and about a fifth of Baudelaire. Okay. Right. And David, I mean, I, as we discovered last week, I do have a tendency to uh, impose on texts implications that they might not have reached themselves. Well, that that I I I'm not mad at it. it it's it's helpful. Um, I, well, I, and they could hardly be mad at you, given that's what Baudelaire does to Poe, and that's what Benjamin does to Baudelaire doing it to Poe. Right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that these it's, it's like one one person reading another person reading another person, and each time, sort of telling us what the other one's doing. And I go back to Poe, and I'm like, is that <laughs> did Baudelaire, well, that, that's, did that's Baudelaire because... read Poe right? <laughs> Well, that's because at the risk of sounding too cute, they're wandering around inside the text, right? I mean, they, ah. they are themselves taking a leisurely stroll. Mm-hmm. I'm not mad at it. Uh, in addition to whatever else it is, city walking, for these guys at least, is a kind of artistic statement. What, what's the connection between the flaneur and the artist? Well, we already kind of talked about um, the 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 romance, uh, or not the 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 romantic side of it, um, and and just to to return to something that we alluded to, but to read it, um, at the, at the end of the day when the gas lights come on and you know the 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 the, the pickpockets are out, then our our artist returns home, um. Well, there, to be sure, is a day well-filled, murmurs to himself, a type of reader well-known to all of us. Each one of us is surely enough genius to fill it in the same way. No! That's not, that's not what happened to the, that's not what happened to the artist. It wasn't the same as everybody else's wandering around. It was a special wandering around. Because few people, says Baudelaire, have the gift of seeing. Fewer still have the power to express themselves. And now, now, whilst others are sleeping, this man is leaning over his table, his steady gaze on a sheet of paper, exactly the same gaze as he directed just now at the things about him, brandishing his pencil, his pen, his brush, splashing water from the glass up to the ceiling, wiping his pen on his shirt, hurried, vigorous, active, as though he was afraid the images might escape him, quarrelsome though alone, and driving himself relentlessly on. And so in Baudelaire, it's, um, oh, I can't, I can't remember, uh, 
maybe maybe it was you, Nathan, talking about the 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 artist the artistic vision in Baudelaire, sort of turning the crowd almost into the uh, into their medium as they walk through. Um, Baudelaire says here that uh, he is he brings to his production of art once he returns home the the same gaze that he directed at the crowd. Um, it's almost as if what was before was not simply seeing, but also a kind of creative seeing that now is going to come into a kind of creative expression that is part of that creative vision. Um, and this feels different to me from what goes on in Virginia Woolf, and it feels different to me from what goes on in Poe. Um, but since I think we may want to say a little bit more differently about Wolf later. Uh, maybe I'll, maybe I'll kind of back off from her. Um, well, I mean, we can, we can talk now. Cause I don't think that that issue is specifically at what, what's at play in the next question about Wolf. Sure. Okay. Um, think of, think about the imaginative power of what Wolf is doing where she's, yeah. she's walking by these, uh, these houses and looking in the windows and imagining the lives. That's, that's a kind of artistic method, isn't it? It is. And I think it's, I think it's one that that feels different from Baudelaire's, though. Um, it's one that instead of wanting to lose the sense of the individual persons, so that you're simply in the flow, it's directing that curiosity very specifically um, in a a kind of empathetic, imaginative voyeurism. It's not like the creepy stalker in the post story. <laughs> um, you know, although in a sense he is creating a character of the old man. Well, he is, but it's 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 almost a villain. Um, I almost kind of want to mash this up with a Sherlock Holmes story, and it turns out that that old man is Moriarty or something. Um, <laughs> right. Um, but with Wolf, it's it's a much more sympathetic imagination. Um, and she'll follow. She this this gaze follows and focuses on um, others in an, in I feel like a more loving way. She's 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 looking more in a kind of a a least of these sort of gaze. A um, let me watch the unregarded kind of way. Um, the description of uh, the the small person in the shoe store. Um, is uh, just a, a lovely example of how her vision is different from Baudelaire's. She doesn't seem to want to turn all of them into artistic fodder. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, hmm, she she kind of does. That's a that's a troubling I, passage for me. But but yeah. I, I think your point is taken. If you if you've read Baudelaire's poetry, you can imagine what he would do with the little person in the shoe store. And it's not yes. half as sympathetic as what she does with him. Her, excuse me. Yeah. I, that, I mean, I, I, I definitely think there's, there's, there's some problematical things we can excavate there, but there is, there is a, there is a, a gentle empathy that in, in Wolf that I don't feel necessarily in Baudelaire's and artistic enthusiasm. Um, yeah, let, it let me feels, ask you this: it feels David, just, just to bounce this off of you, I mean, one possibility that occurs to me is that that Wolf's artistic vision is more mimetic, whereas uh, Baudelaire's is more expressive. 
uh, you know, to, to, so that Wolf is more interested in capturing a reflection of things that are, whereas, you know, Baudelaire is more interested in the artist as one who makes the crowd do what the artist wants the crowd to do. I think that probably sounds like more how each of them would say it themselves. Not that Wolf is not turning these people into her own artistic fodder, but, and not that there's no reality in Baudelaire, but I, I think that would probably come closer to what, what, what they might say. Um, Wolf's reminded me of uh, a Chesterton essay. Um, not the whole essay, but just the beginning of it. It's, it's from his, his collection, Tremendous Trifles. Um, but he says the, the perplexity of life arises from there being too many interesting things in it for us to be interested properly in any of them. What we call its triviality is really the tag-ins of numberless tales. Ordinary and unmeaning existence is like 10,000 thrilling detective stories mixed up with a spoon. That sounds like Chesterton. It, and, and, you yeah. know, Chesterton, I think, fits in fairly neatly with these people as well. I mean, there's, yeah. there's some Chesterton stuff we could have talked about as well. Yeah. But I, reading Wolf's felt more like that view. This kind of amiable, like, I'm just interested in people particularly, and I'm fascinated in the ways that the brief glimpses of them suggest the existence, the unseen existence that they come from and moved it back into. Um, you know, Chesterton is, you know, in, the, in that one little sentence, he's fascinated with the idea that, yes, I see people, but they, but they came from somewhere and they're in the growing some to somewhere and I'm just walking through this cross section of adventures that I'm never going to take a right angle and follow through to the end but if I could it would be amazing and and Wolf Street Haunting seemed to be animated by a, that, that similar kind of uh, view well let's talk about Wolf uh, one of the common things you hear when you're talking about city walking is that there is no female equivalent to the flaneur. There's no, no such thing as the flanus, if only because cities are much more dangerous places for women than for men. And yet we have street haunting. Uh, does she invent the flanus here? Is there something specifically female about her version of city walking? And Nathan, you can be as essentialist or as non-essentialist as you'd like. Well, first of all, I'll just say that uh, the question of whether... The uh, flanus is possible is a question I didn't know existed until recently. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> largely because I had no idea that there was such a thing as a flaneur. So uh, I'm approaching this as an utter novice. Uh, I will say that the perpetual motion uh, that fascinates Baudelaire and that really you see in Poe as well, because once the narrator leaves the coffee shop, uh, the rest of the story, I mean, you know, other than lingering briefly outside the bar is pretty much in, in perpetual motion gives way in Wolf's vision to uh, a, a pressing among the crowd to be sure, but that is punctuated by stops along the way. And we've already talked yeah. about a, a little bit about looking in on, you know, certain scenes uh, and really reflecting on the particularity, not of faces as they pass by in a flash, but uh, of scenes as they unfold over the course of several seconds or maybe even minutes. 
Uh, so in that respect, I mean, you've got a a stronger emphasis on relations between bodies rather than uh, fragments of bodies as they pass. So, I mean, that's certainly an aesthetic difference. I also see that uh, we have moved, you know, back from the very active vision of Baudelaire uh, to something that is a lot more uh, observing. Uh, so, you know, from the object of a gaze, uh, Wolf says, the flanus, if we're going to use that word, uh, becomes an enormous eye. Uh, so, you know, she, she says that in a number of places in this essay uh, that, you know, the, the practice or the experience or the enjoyment of city walking uh, really is a, a play of surfaces that whenever the uh, temptation arises to uh, make things profound or philosophical, uh, the, 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 the one who haunts the city... Uh, ultimately goes back to surfaces. Uh, so in that respect, I mean, I think that uh, whereas, you know, Baudelaire has, uh, for lack of a better term, uh, a, a sort of Hegelian notion of things to where mind organizes things and is very active, uh, you know, I, I really do see Wolf's vision as uh, something closer to an empiricism. It's it's really a receptivity to the particular relationships among things uh, rather than an imposition of uh, a certain kind of, uh, of, of order. Uh, now, I mean, you know, a couple of the stops, and we've already mentioned them briefly, one of them is at a secondhand bookstore, and it's a, it's a, it's a charming look in at, you know, this couple who operates the bookstore, and, you know, one of them uh, seems incapable of, of you know, uh, actually attending to a book long enough to read it, which is, you know, just a wonderful little, uh, juxtaposition. Uh, and then, you know, another of the stops is actually to buy the pencil that she mentions in the opening paragraph. Uh, and once again, you know, it's the relationship between the two shop owners, uh, that's really, uh, charming. Now the shoe store, I'll, I'll, I'll confess, I, I read this relatively quickly and a couple weeks ago, and I didn't revisit that scene when I was prepping for today. Uh, but my memory of it, uh, you know, to go back to Freudian terms, my memory of it is that it was a little bit ambiguous whether the woman shopping for shoes was just unusually short or whether she would have medically classified her, uh, you know, as, you know, someone with dwarfism or something like that. Uh, you guys have paid more attention more recently. What's, what's going on in that shoe store scene? I certainly, I mean, she uses the word dwarf. Uh, we yeah. halt at the door of the boot shop and make up some little excuse which has nothing to do with the real reason for folding up the bright paraphernalia of the streets and withdrawing to some duskier chamber of the being where, where, it, where we may ask as we raise our left foot obediently upon the stand, what then is it like to be a dwarf? And then the, the little... Oh, okay, okay. So that, okay, that's, that's pretty clear then. I, I just didn't remember it well enough. Yeah. Maybe this is uh, observing some of the things that you're talking about, Nathan. Um, I thought of it as uh, the ways that the ways that they interact with their environment. Their eye is one thing, um, but the stops off along the way, it, it reminds me of someone, uh, someone who is at sea because they love the sea, and someone 
who is interested in visiting the islands along the way and uh her her description of wandering around you know she she enjoys she enjoys the sidewalks but also the little shops as kind of you know the the in in between spaces where these where humans on their little voyages can sort of bump into each other and interact and some people are at home in these spaces but most people are not um i i i've i found you know that that attention uh to the these little these little kind of permanent islands but of but of very different environments and it versus the that strong language of flowing and homo homogeneity that's in Baudelaire. Um, you know, once you, once you step out into the street, it's going to, it's, it's just going to sweep you away. Um, but, uh, but Wolf's, Wolf's journey is, is, is punctuated by, by harbors, by ports. Uh, and she is on a quest, unlike, unlike the Flaneur who just seems to be wandering for no particular reason. Even if right, even, even if that quest, quest is, is a pretext. <laughs> right, it's a, and I was that's what I was going to point out is that she she needs this absurd pretext. She has to go wander through the city for 2 hours so she can buy a pencil. Um clearly she is a flanus, but um society won't let her be one. This has to be a productive trip for her, and I I do find that interesting. Oh, I've done that. Not yeah, but Bo but Baudelaire doesn't need the excuse. Poe doesn't need the excuse. Benjamin doesn't need the excuse. But presumably because Wolf is married, a productive member of society, whatever, she has to find a reason to slip out instead of just doing it, which is what all these other guys do. Right. Which certainly has something to do with her being a woman within the context that she writes but I, I i do appreciate that you also highlight the ways in which the speaker and poe and 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 baudelaire that these are also unattached but pe people who seem to be themselves unmoored from um major social obligations or relationships um, right well i mean i think that's i think that's part of the game Right. I mean, to, to be a flaneur is more than just to walk the streets. It's to be the sort of person who walks the streets. Ah. Whereas for me, it's, uh, yes, I absolutely will go to the store for milk. <laughs> but you'll take the long way, right? Yeah, maybe. And, and sort of walk through some aisles I don't need to go. And so... So we went to um, we went to London. Uh, that's where I was last week. And uh, the the really the one time I was alone the whole week was I I walked to a market to get dinner. I did this a couple times, and and I really really enjoyed it. And it was a pretext, right? I mean, I could have gone out. I could have said, "Hey, you stay here. I'm going to go walk around for two hours." I, I wasn't out for two hours as it happens. But I mean, th there's there's something about that about having having a destination, but not really minding how long it takes to get there and going whatever direction you want and having the destination not be the thing. I think, yeah, I, I think there's something maybe more appealing about that than about the thing that Baudelaire is talking about. Though once again, I am married and can't just, 
slip out for three hours. Right. There's something there's something leisurely about the unhurried trip to the destination that is not itself some kind of a stress making obligation. There's there's just something luxurious about it. Uh, especially when your life is very much defined by, I need to be at these places at these times for these ends. Um, those those little bits of leisure, uh, I, I can't say that I, I get back home and have to sort of grab my scratch paper and get all my thoughts on the pad because, you know, the, art, the artistic vision will be lost. You know, don't talk to the poet before he's written down his vision. Um, that's not it for me, but but Wolf's, Wolf's way of talking about it, uh, that I, I feel that very much. And I've certainly never stalked old men through the crowd suspecting that they might be the genius of evil. The, the thing I like about that detail is it, it gets into the sinister aspect of walking in the city. Like, there's a real danger to it. Yeah, you know, you talk about it being infested with pickpockets, but you you wonder, oh, is that person following me? You know, what's going to happen to me? That sort of thing. Yeah, but I don't I don't follow old men around either. <laughs> Nathan, anything else to say about Wolf? No, that, that's about uh, I, I. That's what I've got. I want to focus something uh, focus on something that Baudelaire says in A Painter of Modern Life. He portrays the artist Flaneur as a cosmopolitan, a man of the world. And he says that the city he walks through is, quote, in a world, in a word, life universal. And that really stuck with me because I, I got to wondering how much should we see the activity as city walking as a local practice, which is how I tend to think of it, and how much as a cosmopolitan one. I mean, so when you walk through London or New York or Paris or wherever, are you walking in New York, London and Paris or are you walking in the world, capital T, capital W? Yeah, I, I can only see the walking through life universal as a result of that artistic vision that 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 we've already talked something about. That as he's as he's walking amongst many persons, he is, you know, homogenizing them into a mass of life. Um, in the same way, he looks at these buildings and they become, they become a a, a great landscape of stone. Um, I, though, I don't know. I, I've never I've never walked around Paris. I've never walked around London. Um, I've walked through. I've walked around a number of uh, cities in the United States which if they happened to have been built in roughly the same time with similar visions of urban planning, <laughs> um, I might not, you know, I might not necessarily know where I'm at. There are, you know, definitely some, uh, were some times when uh, we were in uh, Omaha when I felt like I was in some urban spaces in North Alabama or in Athens, Georgia, which is defined by hills. Hilly. I'm glad you say that though, because Omaha has always reminded me of Birmingham. Yeah, um, it's one of the reasons why why going to uh, dear dear listeners, you know, glimpse behind the veil. A few years ago, um, 
Katie and I had the, the, the great opportunity to visit um, uh, one of Michael Farmer's old stomping grounds, Omaha, Nebraska, um, uh, with uh, he and Victoria. And it was it was just a great time. Uh, and, and one of the reasons why uh, I enjoyed it, I don't I don't re- remember even whether I said it at the time, is the ways in which it was it, it resembled the landscape that I grew up in. Uh, which having spent, you know, years teaching in Kansas, I did not get to see a lot of landscape that was like, that would, <laughs> in which I grew up. So, you know, and, and so in some ways, I don't know, the, 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 the cities were, were alike in that sense. Um, but I can't pretend to be a turn of the 19th into the 20th century cosmopolitan European who might conceivably lose track of where he's at. Um, you know, all these places are going to be strange to me. Nathan, you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I, it's interesting. When I, I read this, what occurred to me is the protean nature of the city. And I might be uh, imposing 21st century urban life on 19th century urban life. But what occurs to me is that, you know, I, I don't spend a whole lot of time in the giant cities, but I mean, when I do visit Cincinnati or Indianapolis or uh, Nashville, uh, you know, if I go back 18 months later, so much has been torn down, so much has been rebuilt, so many things have changed uh, that it really could be an entirely new place. It's a, it's a place that is always reinventing itself. So, I you know, again, my suspicion is that I'm imposing that 21st century reality onto this 19th century but you know if i if i can you know be uh you know a little bit fast and loose with my interpretation i think that in a 21st century city uh you really could talk about a city as universal place uh simply because it is not the same place any two times that you walk through it very heraclesian (laughs) oh indeed indeed i think also there is a cultural model now, I, I, again, I might be importing 21st century experiences onto the 19th century, but when you walk through a big city, uh, a, a really major city, you are walking through ethnic enclaves. Um, and you, you see that really, really clearly in New York City where certain neighborhoods just have historically belonged to particular ethnicities and then they get kind of transferred to other ethnicities and then there's spots where all these ethnicities come together so you're hearing all these languages spoken you're hearing all these different sorts of music being played all these different sorts of restaurants you smell different things different sorts of markets different languages on the signs so i i think if that's what he's talking about i think that he's right that there's something cosmopolitan about floating through the middle of that yeah. And yet, even that, it's not like in walking through Little Italy, you've entered Italy. Little Italy is itself a place that is that is separate from other places. And so I still don't know that I would go along and say that, you know, loving Paris makes you cosmopolitan. I suspect loving Paris makes you, makes you a Francophile or at least a Parisophile. Well, and... In- that if you if you feel like you walked through Little Italy and you went to Italy, that in itself is part of that very kind of narcissistic view of that's possible for the uh, for the flaneur. Um, 
because one of the things that defines the nature of a little Italy or a or, or any of these enc uh, the enclaves of which you speak is that they are very definitely not the place that they partake of in some sense um, you know that the, they they are you know the little Italy is not Italy and it is little Italy because it is not Italy um, yeah and and something so important about the experience of the people who call that place home is that it is not that other place that they also in some sense call home um yeah that there's there's something about the, the the spectative nature of at least at least at least baudelaire a little bit the way everyone becomes his his medium and their particulars fall off and they just become this sort of grand vision of humanity that kind of gives him more of what he expects to see um i don't know maybe maybe, maybe i'm maybe i'm imposing too much on baudelaire um but again it, he makes me think of he makes me think of chesterton's comments about people like kipling who who are these sort of great great world travelers who are themselves rootless and feel like they they understand the world because they've been a lot of places and they've wandered around in a lot of places but they've never called anywhere home and that the person who is rooted into a place has actually more in common with humanity overall than the person who's been to a lot of places but has no roots Right, but on the other hand, I mean, when you're in a, a small-town environment, there's no mistaking it for the world, right? Right. Uh, you know, Fair I enough. think about my, my dad's hometown of Oakland City, Indiana, right? I mean, that place is still defined by the plant that left in 1983, right? You know, I mean, wow. directions are always still relative to the Whirlpool plant, even though Whirlpool hasn't built appliances there, you know, almost as long as I've been alive, Right. Uh, so, I mean, there is a, the, the, the pace of change is so much slower that, you know, again, uh, there's not nearly as much of a sense that, you know, it is a new place every time you walk through it, right? The way that I, I, I get the impression from, you know, uh, Baudelaire to, to some extent, but I mean, especially from Virginia Woolf. Yeah. There's a million stories in the Naked City. <laughs> I can't. Is it a million? I can't remember. Yeah. I, do you see the? Uh, I I don't I don't know. Just, just a kind of lateral. Um, is this in the DNA of noir? Oh yeah. Uh, no, absolutely. I think I think if you wanted, if you were, if you're doing a history of noir, you'd have to put the man of the crowd in there. Yeah. Um. There's a. Uh, I don't know if you've read on Terry Pratchett. There's been some some episodes on other shows in the network dealing with Pratchett. Uh, he has a series of novels uh, about the city watch of this big metropolis in in his Discworld fantasy, uh, and the the very first of the of the of the watch novels called Guards Guards um, is about this this captain of the watch who sees the city as as almost like a, a romantic partner partner that that alternately woos and spurns him uh, a, a very noir noir trope but 
he lovingly talks he lovingly thinks his way through um neighborhoods and districts as he walks his beat and he can tell by the feel of the terrain in on it you know through the soles of his boots he can tell where he is in the city because of how it feels um and and i i did not realize the degree to which the aesthetic of those novels is coming out of the sorts of things that you've you've had me read today so thank you for that i'm I'm getting a genealogy of some other things that i love it's funny when that happens isn't it yeah it's cool well let's end with the personal um i think i know the answer to this for both from both of you but i'm going to ask it anyway uh what role has walking urban or otherwise played in your life and did these readings make you want to walk around the nearest large city at terrific speed (laughs) i'm not sure you could do that in houston no you'd get hit by a car (laughs) uh first of all i mean unless it's a large cash payment there's very little that would make me want to walk around a city uh at any speed really uh i don't like crowds at all uh that said i mean i think there's something to be said for walking uh in a more rural or especially from for my experience in a small town setting uh and again it's a different kind of phenomenon because, you know, whereas, you know, Baudelaire and Poe and Wolf want to talk about the, you know, just the, the manifold of sensations, the instantaneous contact, the ever-changing character, uh, there's something about walking around a small town and seeing, uh, you know, things that, you know, my grandparents would have seen, things that, you know, might have been built 120 years ago. Uh, and it's not that, you know, cities don't have old buildings, but the broad gestalt character of a place, you know, remains stable in a way in the, in those areas. Absolutely. Um, and you know, part of it is just my personality. Uh, you know, everyone's life is unpleasant at times. Uh, for some people, life becomes unpleasant when they get bored. I haven't been bored since I was seven years old. Uh, for other people, life becomes unpleasant when it becomes overwhelming uh, you know, as uh, Michael and Danny Anderson saw when we all met up in Athens, uh, I was just as jittery as heck for the whole hour and a half we were in downtown Athens, even though it's not that big a town. If you uh, just drank, if you would have just drank the beer, you would have felt better. <laughs> <laughs> I, I imagine that might be the case. Uh, but so I mean, you know, I think that uh, you know we could do a, an alternative essay on or an alternative essay. An alternative episode on, you know, town walking rather than city walking. Yeah, we it'd should. It'd be a very different com- conversation, but uh, I think it'd be interesting in its own ways. I'd put, David, put what it do together. you uh, I've, I've walked in, in a few urban spaces. Uh, we, we noted Omaha, um, the small city uh, of Athens, Georgia as well, and walked a little a little bit in downtown Birmingham. Um you know, well, uh, when you were getting uh, your 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 MA in, in Omaha, Michael, I was getting my MA at at the University of Alabama at Birmingham, which is downtown. So there was an awful lot of you know walking walking in that urban space because once I'd gotten my parking spot, I was not going to leave, no matter how many hours I had to be down there. <laughs> um, so you know, I've 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 logged, I've put in some miles of city walking. And and some of that was more fun than others. Most mostly, the 
the the the heat environment has a lot to do with it. I've always been I've always liked walking. Um, I like to walk through neighborhoods. I like to walk in the rain. Um, in fact, uh, I like walking on a cold day in the rain. I don't know what that's about. Maybe I'm just trying to get myself killed killed of a chill. But um, I I enjoy uh, that that kind of the the aesthetic of the weather. Walking in fog, walking in autumn, and listening to leaves skitter on the on the streets. Um, I I like I like all of that. Um, I also like sitting in public spaces. So sitting in malls, sitting in restaurants. Uh, before I was married, I used to go out to eat a lot, just sort of by myself with a book, and sit in a corner and just sort of watch people. Um, so I, a, a lot of this is, it, it reminds me of, of experiences that I've done, you know, things I've done for fun. Um, but it's as often uh, sitting and watching as, as, as walking and sort of wading into the flow of it. Um, but a lot of it just has to do with the fact that I've never lived in near the, near the, the urban center of a really walkable city. Yeah. And the only place I ever have is Omaha, and I walked around Omaha all the time, and I loved it and miss it, because uh, it's you know as as Nathan points out, walking in the country or in a small town is not the same thing. They, those those things have their own pleasures, but it's not the same. And and walking in a very large city is also not the same thing, um, because you don't feel like you know it the way you do a small city. So there's much more to be said on this topic, and if any of our listeners would like to say any of it. Uh, they can get in touch with us at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. Which one of you is hosting next week? I'm totally lost. <laughs> uh, I think I'll go ahead and take next week uh, because our sequence is a little bit off. And uh, we'll be talking about a movie that uh, might not hold up well over 20 years, but has nonetheless been a cultural touchstone. And that is uh, 1999's The Matrix. <laughs> I think I've said all I'm going to say. <laughs> oh, I'm excited. My wife has never seen this. Yeah, I, I envy your wife. You should uh, not show it to her so that she can continue to be a happy person. <laughs> I'm not going to show her the sequels. You know, I kind of I kind of liked the second one. Anyway. I, I, I think the second one would have been good if the third hadn't been utterly wretched. I never saw the third one. Is it which one is Cornell West in? Is he in the third one or the second one too? Uh, second one and the third one, if I remember right. But it's been a few years. I, I never did go back and revisit the sequels. So we're just talking about the first one. Oh yes, we're only yeah. talking about the first one. All right. Well, um, yeah. Like I said, you can get in touch with us at thechristianhumanist at gmail Our website is christianhumanist.org. Christian Humanist Podcast is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our intern is Ellen Peterson. Till next week, this is Michael Farmer for Nathan Gilmore and David Grubbs saying, let your sins be strong, but let your faith be stronger. <laughs>